can, we can uh, do, that, do that this evening. So, uh, if you open up your notes packet, the first question in there is, what is the church? And if you listen to the podcast, you heard that answer. But for those of you who didn't hear, uh, we, we're going to answer it again, and, and in a little bit different words, we're going to say, the first thing that, that you need to know about the church is, the church is a monarchy. The church is a monarchy with a king, King Jesus. And the church is the gathering of those people who bow their knee to King Jesus, all over the world, at all times, in all places. The, the church, the big C church, the church is anyone who trusts in Christ. And so the, the church is a monarchy who follows a king, King Jesus. That's sort of fundamentally what we, we are. And, but we can get more particular than this. Turn, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is, uh, different people will describe this in different ways, but this is basically the, the birth of the church, at least in the New Testament period, and what's going on here is something really amazing that the prophets uh, foresaw that, that happens here, and, and here's what's happening. In, in Acts chapter 2, if you look at those first few verses, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and then divided tongues of fire come down. And here's, here's what I want you to, to see here. This whole section is filled with language that echoes Genesis. It echoes creation, particularly uh, rushing wind. Both of those words are used in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to talk about creation. Why? I see faces like, what? So why? What's going on here? The church is the, the beginning of a new creation that God is going to make. Think about this. Th this is why it happens on Pentecost. Pentecost is the feast of first fruits. The fir it's like the Costco sampler. It, it's, the church is the first fruits of what God is going to do when he makes all things right in the end. And the church, think about this. This is why Jesus is the new Adam. This is why Paul says that we're a new creation if we're in Christ that we put off the old self and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God. This is also why submission is such a big deal. Why does Paul make such a big deal about submitting to authorities, submitting to your parents, uh, submitting to one another in the church, wives submitting to husbands? Because at the fall, authority was flipped on its head. That was Satan's way of attacking. And so the church stands as this anti-fall institution that, that shows to the world there's a way to reverse the curse and it's through Jesus Christ and his gospel. There's a way to, to become uh, what God is going to make us, to have a new heart, to, to, to be a new creation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Also, you notice, it, uh, going back to Genesis, what happens at the Tower of Babel? God comes down and does what? Mixes up the language so they can't work together. What happens at Pentecost? God comes down and allows them to preach the gospel in all different kinds of languages, not for the purpose of splitting up, but for the purpose of what? Unifying. The church is reverse curse, reverse babble. We're the first fruits of what God is going to do in the world. And so as a church, we stand, as the church of Christ globally around the world, every believer, we stand as an institution of hope that says there is a way to be right with God, there is a way to be reconciled with him. It's through Jesus Christ. We can, we can essentially go back to Eden, which is what all the Bible is pointing towards God's plan, and that is through Jesus. 
So the church, what is it? It's a monarchy that, that stands as a pointer to the hope of new creation through faith in Jesus Christ. Good so far? Okay. Maybe we'll be just fine on time. We'll see. The second question you have on there is, is who is a part of the church? And I've said this, but just let, let's say it again. It's all true believers in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has the Spirit is a part of the, the we'd say, the universal church, the big C church. Um, and, and keep in mind, this, this means even people that we might have strong disagreements with on secondary doctrines, if they have the Spirit, if they trust Christ for salvation and they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, they're a part of the universal body of Christ. And so uh, we don't want to get too narrow in that. And it's, it, so any believer, all time, past, present, and future, is a part of the big C, universal, we would say it, or invisible, we might say it, church. Now we're going to move to number three. This will be the, kind of the meat of our time. What is the church's mission? We're, we're a monarchy. We have a king, Christ, and the church is all those people who bow their knee to him, who trust in him for salvation. And we stand as the first fruits, the, the sampler, the Costco sampler of what God is going to do in restoring creation. We love one another. We submit to one another. We, we paint this picture for the world of what, what is, what, how the creation will be restored when, when God makes it right. But does God give us a more concise, uh, a more a one-liner, you might say, of how we carry out that, that mission? And the answer is yes. You probably all know this verse, Matthew 28, 19. Yes? If you'd like to flip over, you can. And that verse says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission of the church is really simple, to make disciples. That is, that is the mission of the church, is to make disciples. And uh, I'll fill that out a bit more, because I think uh, at times we hear make disciples and we think, okay, evangelism. The idea of making disciples is encompassed in what Jesus says in the, in the second part of what he says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. What this encompasses is the entire Christian life, from evangelism to when you die and go to glory. The whole thing. So when we say make disciples, we're not just talking about evangelism. We're talking about evangelizing, sharing the gospel. We're talking about walking one-on-one -on -one with another believer. We're talking about anything that you do that helps someone follow Christ. A disciple means someone that follows Jesus. And so when we say the mission of the church is to make disciples, what we're saying, this could be Awana, this could be youth group, this could be Bible study, this could be one-on-one -on -one meetings, this could be your friendship with another believer that you're spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, this could be your kids at home that you're training to love the Lord and to know him, this could be counseling that you do with other believers or adult children or anything done with a view towards building someone up in Christ, helping them mature in Christ is part of that spectrum of discipleship. So when we say the church's mission is to make disciples, it's not a narrow view. It's the, the whole broad spectrum of what that means. Does that make sense? 
So the mission of the church is, is simply to, to make disciples. And it's really popular right now to, to talk about all different kinds of things of what the church, the church broadly is sort of confused about like, like, should we focus on this or focus on this or do we build wells? Do we help the homeless? Do we love the city? It's super popular to talk about changing the city and changing the culture and influencing the culture. And the problem is this, it, it, church history has shown us, w- the more we focus on changing the culture, the more irrelevant we become. And the more we focus on making disciples, the more we change the culture. Because as people believe the gospel, have the spirit, get a passion for Christ, they go out and they live in ways that do affect the culture. But our laser focus is making disciples. We do good. We build wells. We help build orphanages. We do all kinds of good all over the place. That flows out of us as believers. But the mission of the church, the the focus of the church is making disciples baptizing at the beginning, sharing the gospel, bringing them into the church, and then uh, growth in Christ throughout the entirety of of one's life. Still with me? Yes? Good. Okay. Now, here's what what I want to do that is is slightly different um, to talk about the mission of the church and and maybe help flesh it out. Um, I want to look at, the rest of our time, I want to look at Paul. And I want to look at how Paul fleshes out how we fulfill this mission. If the mission is to make disciples, Paul is this perfect case study that shows us how do you actually do that? What does that look like for the church? And then Mike and Matthew are going to take it and, and run with it and go into even more detail. But just big picture, uh, I think this will be helpful and it might help you understand your New Testament better because we're going to go through every one of Paul's books in the next 18 minutes and 57 seconds. But really broadly, don't worry. So, to start with Paul, to get Paul, um, we have to go to Isaiah. You, you, you have to go to Acts 9, which is where he's converted, but to really get Acts 9, you have to get some things in the Old Testament. So, we're going to quickly, hopefully, quickly walk through three Old Testament visions that, that explain Paul's vision in Acts 9. Ready? Okay. The first one, Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Do you remember in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah sees the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the angels are crying, holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is seeing a future event, and we know this because in chapter 2, verse 8, he has just said that the whole land is full of idols. Same language, filled with. But then he sees a day, God comes along and says, don't worry, Isaiah, there will be a day when my glory will fill the whole earth, and the Messiah will be high and lifted up and exalted. And what that vision does is that motivates and drives Isaiah's ministry for the rest of his ministry. He's driven to see this day when the Messiah is exalted above all else. And Isaiah focuses on on sort of salvation and how salvation works. Now, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. Do you remember Ezekiel 1? The wheels and the flames and it's it's crazy. Uh, Ezekiel comes along after Isaiah and draws on the same language, the same wording, and he paints the same picture from a different angle. He talks about how this Messiah, this this one who sits on the throne, will make his glory fill the earth by putting the spirit inside of his people. Sound familiar? So he emphasizes the spirit and how God's glory fills the earth through the spirit indwelling his people. And Ezekiel draws on all the same language to key us in and say, hey, that thing Isaiah saw... Yeah, I'm going to build on it. And guess what? That motivated his ministry 
as well. Daniel. Daniel 7. Do you remember what happens in Daniel chapter 7? The Ancient of Days is seated, and one like a son of man comes to him. Daniel takes wording from Isaiah, he takes wording from Ezekiel, and he pulls it all together, and he says, yes, what you two saw, I'm seeing as well, and, and I'm seeing this one like a son of man, and I'm not going to emphasize the spirit necessarily, and I'm not going to emphasize salvation. What Daniel emphasizes is that the Messiah is the king of kings and lord of lords who rules over every kingdom. There's no king like him, and in the end, his kingdom will rule over all forever and ever. So three angles on the same event. And just to show you I'm not totally crazy, if you go read Revelation 4 and 5 later, for those of you who are interested, it's all the exact same language of those visions, and John sees the day when it all finally comes together, and it's, it's the moment that we're all waiting for. And it all comes together in Jesus. Now, back to Acts 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's persecuting Christians. He is breathing out threats against God's people. And, and God comes in Acts 9, and, and we also get more light on it from Acts 22, he describes it. And just listen to these similarities. Again, you, you can't just make these connections willy-nilly. They have to be intended, and come talk to me if you want more, more proof. But just notice some things uh, in Acts 9, as, as Paul is, is knocked off his horse, it says that he saw a bright light, just like Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. He fell to the ground, just like Isaiah in chapter 6 and just like Ezekiel in chapter 1. He calls Jesus, he says, who are you, Lord? He's not asking, who are you? Are, are you Lord? No, this is the clue that the, the Old Testament scholar, expert Paul, he knew how all these visions fit together. We can go read old documents and know that the Jews interpreted them this way. And so Paul sees that and goes, okay, this is the Lord, but, but who are you? And when he gets the answer, Jesus, that's when everything changes for him. Notice also, others heard this vision but didn't see it with Paul. That's in Ezekiel 1. There's blindness, which is representative of salvation in Isaiah 6. He goes three days without food after the vision, just like Ezekiel goes seven days in his vision. He's filled with the Spirit, just like Ezekiel was. And then in, in uh, Acts 22, we find out it says, he was appointed to see the righteous one. The righteous one is what Jesus is called in Isaiah. All of those points come together, and here's what they tell us. In Acts 9, when Paul is commissioned for his ministry to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he sees that day where the saints are all worshiping the Messiah. He's exalted, he's high and lifted up above everything else. And he sees that, and that is his passion for the church. And keep in mind now, as we look at his letters, God doesn't waste revelation. Parchment is expensive, really expensive. They don't waste and so each letter plays a specific role in Paul's writings, and when you put them all together, you get a picture of, okay, how do we flesh out this making disciples thing? How does Paul get the church from where it is to that day when, how are we going to get to that day when we're standing before him blameless, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain? Still with me? Yeah? Okay. We might even finish early. Okay. We're going to go in general chronological order with Paul. First and second Thessalonians. He writes first and second Thessalonians to a Gentile church who did not know anything about the gospel or Jesus. And so what we're going to see in each of these books is, is an aspect of what we need to know and understand to get church right. 
Um, and so this, in First and Second Thessalonians, it's the big picture. It's the foundation of, of here's, here's how to know that you're saved, and here's how the middle of the church age will go, and here's how the end goes. It's the overview of the whole church age until Jesus comes back. And, it's, and so we need this broad framework to understand what's God's plan for this whole time in history between when Jesus went back up to heaven and when he's going to come again. And so the first kind of thing that Paul sets out is this big picture view of God's plan for history during the church age. First and second Thessalonians. The next grouping of letters, those, uh, I would just call those overview. The next grouping of letters is first and second Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians. These are called the doctrinal letters. Oh, by the way, do you have a sidebar in your notes? Bride, body, yes? Okay, we're going to try and hit those also because those are metaphors that God uses for the church. And so in the books where they come up, I'll try to hit those on the side and just kind of keep notes on the side. I think uh, Matthew and Mike will fill those out a little bit more for you, but just want to introduce those. So 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is where you get this temple metaphor. And the temple, uh, from the very beginning, the temple, if you go read about it in the Old Testament, is made to look like Eden because it's representing to the nations that our God can bring us back to Eden, can make everything right, can undo the curse. And when we as believers are called a temple, this is the point. It is the place where the world looks and sees who God is and what he's like. The way we treat one another, the way that we act is the way we put on display for the world. There is a way back to Eden. It's through trusting in Jesus Christ and he will restore all things. He will make us right with him. He will make the world right. He will make relationships right. And so we are, we are the temple. We are the place where, this, we were just talking about this in junior high this morning, um, that when we love one another, John says, no one has seen God. And there's like, what? Why he's bringing this out of nowhere? But when we love one another, we put on display what God is like for the world. So we're the temple. We're the place that God uh, is seen by the world. 1 Corinthians also uses this body analogy, uh, also on your sidebar there. Um, and the body analogy is simply this, that, that Jesus has ascended up into heaven. He is not physically on earth right now. But those who trust in him, who have his spirit in them, are the, the ones who function as him on earth. It's as if he were working through us. And then he goes further and talks about how each member of the church plays their own role. And the you remember that the hand can't say to the eye, I have no need of you, and we're all integrated, and we need one another, and Matthew's going to talk more about that, but you get temple and body in 1 Corinthians. You get, let's just hit all of these right now. You get the bride, uh, you get the bride motif in, in 2 Corinthians, you get it in Ephesians, and the idea is this. Throughout the Old Testament, God talks about how he's like a faithful husband, and his people are his bride. And he purchased them with his own blood. And so the point here, what God is getting at when he calls us his bride, is just that his deep love for us and his commitment over years and years and years and years to be faithful and to show his sacrificial love over and over again. And that he has a passion for his people. He loves them. He sacrifices for them. He lays down his life for them. Temple, body, bride. Uh, let's hit the last one real quick. Family, family. You see this um, in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians, I'll, I'll turn there and read a bit for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, um, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The idea is this, that, 
that Jesus is God's son, and we are united with him by faith, and it says that we're heirs with him, we're, we're fellow brothers with him, and brothers and sisters, and so we are a family. We interact like a family. We love one another. We forgive one another. We need one another. We, we care for one another, and so um, I don't know. I just wanted to throw those out there. I know it's on a sidebar, but, but temple, body, bride, and family, those are, those are metaphors that God uses for the church. All right. First and second Thessalonians give us the overview of redemptive history in this time period. First Corinthians, how the new covenant plays out in general church life. It's a doctrine of how to do church. We need to know what you're going to see in all these doctrinal books. We need to know as a church, how does the gospel play out in life? How does it play out in, in church body life? That's 1 Corinthians. They thought the new covenant meant you could do whatever you wanted. And so Paul has to come in and say, I'm going to correct here, I'm going to correct here, I'm going to correct here and here, and this is how the new covenant works. 2 Corinthians talks about how does the new covenant, how does the gospel work with church leadership? How does it affect the way we lead? And, and it shows how it's not by the world system of, of what looks good on the outside, but that in our weakness, in the church's weakness and humility, the leader's weakness and humility, God is shown as powerful and great. And so there's, 2 Corinthians shows us that we need to, the gospel to affect how we understand leadership in the church. Romans is all about how the gospel fits in with God's salvation plan for history. So it's, it's justification, how we get right with God. Galatians talks about how we need to understand that how the gospel affects our sanctification. How the gospel affects how we grow in Christ. It's the gospel in your life. Romans, the gospel in God's plan. Second Corinthians, the gospel in God's in church leadership. First Corinthians, the gospel in the church. So those doctrinal epistles are all about how the gospel affects what we do as a church. Next, prison epistles. These are all about the, the doctrinal talk about what. What, what is the nature of, of how we should interact in the church? What is, it's, it's very doctrinally focused. This, this next section, the prison epistles, are how. How. Ephesians talks about how, how do we interact with one another as a church family? How do we fit into God's plan? It's all about the, the sort of the foundation of how the church fits in God's big picture plan. It's, it's a slightly different take than first and first, second Thessalonians, but we need to understand what is our role as a church in God's plan. Colossians talks about how the church proclaims and exalts Christ. How do we relate to Christ as a church? And talks about him being supreme. He's the head. He's over everything. We are Christ-centered as the church. Philippians talks about how church life works in relation to those, those outside our local church family. And it shows us that this, we need to understand how unity allows us to go and make disciples. Unity, partnership in the gospel, lets us go and make disciples. Philemon is the flip side of that. It's how unity inside the church helps us to fill, fulfill our mission. The, Philemon is all about how the slave is now my brother. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no separation between people in the church we must be united to fulfill our mission. And then lastly, we come to three, the three pastoral epistles, they're called. And the pastoral epistles are, are this. They're, they're sort of the glue that makes sure all of this that Paul's been talking about holds and fits together and passes on to the future. So 
Titus deals with internal discipleship in the church. That's why you, where you get, uh, we always quote Titus 2, that we want the older men and the older women training the younger men and the younger women. Because that whole book is about how do we do this disciple-making thing inside the church? How do we grow one another? And Titus sets that structure for us. First Timothy is, is more on the external side of how do, we, how do we uphold the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth? That phrase comes from First Timothy. How do we, how do we maintain the, the integrity of the church's doctrine against false teachers that usually come from the outside? And then Second Timothy. Second Timothy ties all of it together, and it's Paul's uh, final legacy handoff to Timothy. And it's amazing. If you study through 2 Timothy, he pulls lines from every other book he's written because he knows he's about to die. And the, the, the Pauline ministry is becoming Timothy's ministry. And he's saying, I've set up this church network. This guy's over here. This guy's over here. Here's where you need to focus. Focus on preaching the word. That's the climax of the letter. And he pulls it all together. And he talks about this is, this is how we ensure that this all continues on to the next generations. This is how we pass the gospel torch on. That's where we get uh, and trust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's in 2 Timothy. Now, I know it was a lot. I know that was fast. Um, Paul's letters set this framework of how, how do we make disciples? How, yes, it's baptizing and teaching. But then you get it all fleshed out in all these different aspects in Paul's different letters. And here's what's so neat. In 2 Timothy, he pulls all the other letters into it and he, and he boils them down and he brings them all together and he says, I'm passing on, Timothy, my ministry to you. But here's the thing. Do you ever hear people say, this is very popular right now, well, Paul was talking about that time, and that applied then, but it doesn't apply now. And someone might even come to us and say, well, you don't apply Acts this way or the Gospels this way. You don't go around and try to repeat what Jesus did. So why would you try to repeat what Paul did? You see how they can make that argument? But here's the problem. Paul pulls all of his letters, sums them up, hands it off in 2 Timothy as his last letter. And what, what he does, this is the thing you have got to keep in mind. Timothy is his best protege. That's the one he's tutored up, he's raised up, he's handing off to his best guy. And, and guess where Timothy is? Timothy's in Ephesus. Ephesus is the central hub of all of Asia Minor. You give the letter to Ephesus, and the whole point is this. This isn't for Ephesus, this is for everybody. Because if you secure Ephesus, this is why Paul spends his most time there, this is why he writes Ephesians, is the deepest, most theologically rich letter. If you secure Ephesus, you can get the gospel out to the whole world. And so by writing to Timothy, he pulls it all together and he hands it off to his best protege in the most strategic place. And look at the last verse of 2 Timothy. This is why we still study the original languages. If you look in English, it says, verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Do you see that at the end? This is Paul's last words. Anybody have a footnote on that? You should if you have ESV. You might just be quiet. There's a footnote. My footnote says, the Greek for you is plural. That is the first time in the entire letter 
that a plural pronoun is used, second person plural pronoun. The whole time, Timothy, do this. Timothy, do this. Do this. Do this. Do this. Close the letter. Grace be with you all. Plural. What does Paul know? It's not just Timothy. Pauline ministry isn't just Timothy's ministry. It's our ministry. And by tying that knot on his last letter at the strategic location to the strategic man, what does he say? All of my teaching remains in effect for all churches in all times. It all applies. There's no wiggle room on this. It's very clear. And so Paul hands off his, his whole network of thinking about the church to us. And he says, my mission is now your mission, church. That day that I look forward to the, when the Messiah will be lifted up and exalted and his glory will fill the whole earth and people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship him. The way you do that is by making disciples, by being laser focused on making disciples, by baptizing them, teaching them to obey Jesus. And to do that, you've got to understand God's big plan for history in Thessalonians. You've got to understand how the gospel impacts church life and leadership in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, how the gospel impacts salvation and sanctification in Romans and Galatians. We have to understand how this works out practically in, in how we fit in God's plan in Ephesians as the church and how we're to be Christ-centered in Colossians and how we've got to be unified so that our external witness can be, can be sound in Philippians and so that our internal witness to our children to the next generation can be passed on in Titus. We've got to also have internal relationships that are, are clean and right and good and pure in Philemon. The slave is our brother now. There is no division among the body of Christ. We need to be committed to upholding sound doctrine and defending against false teachers. And we need to be committed to entrusting this to the next generation, raising up godly men and trusting the gospel to them. And that's what missions is. We go out and, and we bring the gospel in new areas that don't have it, establish healthy churches where the gospel is proclaimed, and we do that process over and over and over again until he comes back. Amen? All right, so that's a big picture framework. Uh, Mike and Matthew are going to come clean up all the mess I just made and uh, flesh out what does that actually mean day to day in our local church? What do we do day to day? Um, who are we to be day to day in, in this local body and fitting into that broader body? Make sense? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and worship you. You are, you are the king. You rule in your church. Uh, Lord, rule in our hearts more and more day by day. Help us to learn tonight and make that learning uh, flow out into a life of love for you and love for others that shares the gospel and, and lives a life worthy of the gospel. It's in your name and for your honor that we pray.